Good morning. New Life Church, welcome here. For those of you who are online right now joining us that way, welcome. Glad you've joined us. Uh, for those of you who maybe don't know me, my name is Rusty. That's my name. I didn't pick it. <clears throat> That's my name. And, uh, but I'm glad you're This just really does feel like a morning of celebration for lots of reasons. I mean, first of all, we're just celebrating God. We're celebrating the life that we have in Jesus and uh, the grace and, and love that are ours uh, in Him. And so that's worthy of celebration and uh, celebrating being together again. Uh, probably as many people will be here this morning as, as there have been here at one time since COVID began 18 months ago. So I know some of you are here for the first time in a long time. That's you. Welcome back. I just hope it's a great re-entry to, uh, to fellowship, and we're looking forward to that time out there. Axe throwing. I'm just super pumped to watch Betty Ann Semler throw an axe. I can hardly wait. I want it to be two, like a double axe throw. And uh, you're just going to have to, you know, gather around the place there to see Betty Ann throw axe. It, it, should, it should be fun. So I'm looking forward to, to connecting uh, with you. Man, just to hear the pitter-patter of the kids' feet moving about. What a good thing, you know. Over these 18 months since we last had Sunday school, 18 months. Often I've wandered down that hallway. The lights never go on down there. Rooms, empty toys, just kind of packed away, just sad. And so I'm uh, just really grateful that at least for this season that our kids can have that sort of time together to grow in their relationship with God and one another. Oh, I hope my voice is going to hold out through, for this. If it seems a little hoarse, uh, Trust me, it's not due to COVID, it's due to the banjo bowl. <laughs> the game yesterday with Erica, great game, but like literally halfway through the third quarter, it struck me, I got to preach tomorrow. And I turned to Erica and I said, I think I got to shut this down. I was starting to, to, to hear the voice going, and so I hope it uh, brings me through this. I just don't feel like I've got quite the yelling energy <laughs> that I normally do when I come up here. Uh, last weekend... Family and I, we went to St. Fatale Mall. I got four, four girls in my family. It's what we do. And uh, just, it, it is what it is, all right? I just resigned myself to that's my life. We were in Amomo, which some of you might know. It's a Japanese department store there in St. Fatale Mall. And my girls somehow have gotten really into Japanese stuff. I don't know why. I don't get it. But they all love Japanese stuff. So they love the store, Amomo. We were in there. Erica comes up to me and says, Hun, do you remember... What happened on this spot? What is she talking about? It took me a few seconds to clue in. Oh, yeah, this used to be Moxie's restaurant. And it used to be, it was about right in this spot where we had the conversation. March 16th, 2003, I remember it well. We were sitting at a table in that same spot where we had the DTR talk, the define the relationship conversation right? She had been this girl. We'd been to know one another. I took her on the state. And it was that time to determine, what are we? And um, I, as I recall, I ordered the cheapest thing on the menu. I was a poor college student and a Mennonite, so you know, both counts. And um, I got the bruschetta. I, know, I remember the bruschetta. It was the cheapest appetizer on the menu. We ate there. We had the talk. And we left that table with her's my girlfriend. And the rest is history. 
She's still my girlfriend. We should get married someday, huh? We should, I promise it's going to happen. Uh, yeah. The DTR, the define the relationship talk. Imagine if you sat down around a table with God to have that conversation. To answer that question, what are we? What is this? And he asked you, like, what is this relationship? How would you answer that question? What are we? You know, I think there's one key word that would probably describe or define the relationship, should define the relationship. I think it would probably be the word disciple. Have you heard that word before? You've heard it? You know it's in your Bible. You've seen it in there. But you don't use the word a lot, right, to, to be honest. I mean, when do you hear the word disciple out in the world? Maybe when there's a news story on some, like, weird cult. Or, you know, the title of some death metal band or something. And yet, when you look in the Scriptures, you find that this is the word that Jesus used for those He called to follow Him. He called disciples. And this is what those first followers of Jesus called themselves, disciples. And Jesus, before He went back to heaven, when He was giving His kind of final charge for what He wanted His disciples to do, He said at the end, of, in Matthew chapter 28, He said, um, Go and make disciples of all nations. And so that's our mission. And those are the first words of our mission statement as a church. New Life Church exists to make disciples who experience new life in Christ and express new life to one another and extend new life to those who don't yet know God. So that seems to be the key word that defines the relationship. Disciple. But what is it? I mean, back in the day, in Jesus' day, they all knew that it wasn't a particularly religious term. It wasn't an uncommon term. They knew what it meant to be a disciple. But if we want to understand what that really means today, maybe the better word is the word apprentice. Apprentice. A disciple is one who's becoming like the one that they follow, their teacher, their master. An apprentice. And so you'll have John, one of those first disciples in his letter, 1 John 2, 6. He says, whoever would claim to live in Christ must live as Jesus lived. Whoever would claim to be a Christian must live as Jesus lived, must be an apprentice, disciple. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, when he says, in all things God is working for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And what is God's purpose for those He calls? In the next verse, it says, to conform us to the image of His Son, to make us like Jesus, that we in our lives, in our actions, in our attitudes, we would reflect the character of God. We would reflect the values and the priorities of God. We would be about the things that Jesus was about. We would be disciples. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed that there seem to be many more decisions for Christ than disciples of Christ out there. There seem to be more believers than there are disciples. More fans than there are followers. Because those two things are really different, right? Fans and followers. Like, you're a fan of maybe a team or, or someone. Maybe as a teenager, if you remember that far back, you, you had like a poster on your wall of some athlete or a singer, or a movie star, or somebody, your favorite preacher, maybe, could happen, right? I mean, 
When I was a teenager, it was Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders, all-star, Hall of Fame running back for the Detroit Lions. Excellent running back. Loved Barry Sanders. But you know what? I was a big fan. I liked him, but I never tried to be like him. Like, I didn't watch game tape and then go out in the field and try to, like, learn his moves so I could be like Barry Sanders. No, I admired him. I cheered for him. I was a fan, but I wasn't a, I wasn't a follower. I liked him, but I wasn't becoming like him. A fan, a believer, is to like Jesus. A follower, a disciple, is to be like, to become like. And that's what God says we are. We're called to be disciples. To know what it is to to be a disciple is to know God's dream for your life. And don't you want to know? And don't you want to live out God's dream for your life? got to know what it means, what it looks like to be a disciple. So over these four Sundays, we're going to explore God's dream for us, God's dream for you, really by going through one chapter of the Bible, Romans chapter 12, which probably better than any other chapter gives us this great summary of what the life of a disciple of Jesus looks like. It's kind of a great summary of authentic Christianity. If you've got your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 12, because that's where we're going to be this morning and over these next uh, four weeks in the series that we've called Disciples Dissected. Now, dissected, that's a bit of a weird word, maybe a bit of a messy word. Maybe you can remember back to high school, I do, when I dissected the frog. Remember the smell of that formaldehyde? Right? Cut it open to see what was inside. What makes a frog a frog? It's to look at its parts to understand it. I remember as a 15-year-old being in Beijing, going to the Chinese Museum of Man. I think it was called their Human History. They had a whole floor dedicated to dissected humans. I can still smell that formaldehyde. I saw what was inside a human being from every angle. I won't say any more about that. We have to eat soon. But this is what we're going to do. We're, we're, we're going to go through Romans 12, and we're going to dissect the life of a disciple. What makes a disciple of Jesus a disciple? What does that life look like? And as we do that, we're going to find kind of four core values of a disciple's life given to us in this chapter, Romans 12. And so we're going to read it. Uh, you can follow along in your own Bible or on the screen now, I read somewhere today, some study came out that said this, this new generation, you know, technology and everything, they, they have a, an attention span of eight seconds. Literally, that's not an exaggeration, eight seconds. And I thought, oh my goodness, how long do I preach? <sighs> so, this is going to take more than eight seconds. When we read verses, we have to read like two or three or four verses at a time. We're going to read a chapter. It's not a long chapter as chapters go, but it's a chapter. So, hey, let's just be plugged in. Let's give God our mind, and and let's just, we're going to read through this, and then we're going to focus on the first two verses this morning and go through it bit by bit over these next four weeks. So this is uh, uh, what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, Romans 12, the words of Paul and the words of God to us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. And bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position and do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil and be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. But on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, and in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's kind of weird. We'll get there. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You did it. There was a word that jumped out at me as I was looking at this chapter, right in the middle there, verse 10, where uh, Paul says, be Devoted. Now that word jumped out to me. Devoted. And then I'm like, I heard that word before. I know it's elsewhere in the Bible. And then it came to me, Acts chapter 2. The very first description of the very first church, the first word spoken of it. You find it in Acts chapter 2. You know, we, a whole, the gospel was preached. A bunch of people, 3,000, put their faith in Jesus, were baptized. The church was born. And this is how it describes them. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves. It seems like an important word. Devoted. What does it mean to be devoted? You have some idea, right? To be devoted to something or to someone. It means to, to direct all of yourself, like all your time and energy and, your, and, and resources towards some activity or some person. To be all in towards someone or something. It's to be devoted to that thing or to that one. It means a, a, a giving of all of oneself over to another. And this is why Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, He says, you can't serve two masters because you're either going be, to be devoted to one and you're going to despise the other. You can't be devoted in different directions because devotion means giving all of yourself. So over these weeks, these four weeks as we unpack Romans 12, we're going to see that the disciple is devoted. I think it's going to be the key word we're going to use. And we're going to see four different ways the, the disciple is devoted in their life. 
and uh, how these correspond with four key relationships that each and every one of us have in our lives, kind of the four key relationships. Um, But we're going to begin by looking at this first devotion of the disciple. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. What we're going to see here is that Paul is giving us, well, three things. He's giving us a command to follow, and then he's giving us a motive, why we should do that thing, and then he's also going to give us a result, what's going to happen if we do that thing. So we're going to look at command, we're going to look at motive, and we're going to look at the result here in these couple verses. And so what is the command? Well, Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. Offer yourself as a sacrifice. And I mean, I'm sure you can even picture it, right? Like, this is temple imagery. This is something that his first audience, whether they were Jewish background or Greek-Roman background, they all knew they had all been in temples. They had all offered bulls or goats or, you know, pigeons or something on the altar to give it to their gods. They were familiar with this idea of sacrifice. And he says, you are to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. This is your true worship. Offer yourselves. What Paul is saying is, he's saying, Christians, you are to give your whole life to to, to God. You are to put yourself completely at God's disposal, under His control, to do His will, whatever it might be, that God can do with you whatever He wants to do with you. We are to offer ourselves. Well, he didn't actually say ourselves or yourself. He He could have used a few different words there, but what's the word he used? Offer your bodies. Now, like in Greek, that's an actual, the word that actually meant, not like the whole being, the person, like it actually meant the body, the physical body. Now, that would have been kind of startling to some of his readers, kind of like that more Greek and Roman background, because they had this conception of worship and the spiritual life that would have caused them to go, what, what, are, you, what, what are you saying here, Paul? Right? Because in, in their worldview, the body was bad and negative, right? The things that were of worship that were divine, religious. It was, it was the intellectual and it was the mystical. It was the, things, the thing of the mind and the spirit. But it didn't really have anything to do with the body, the activities of the body. So uh, they had this separation, right? This was of God, this was worship, and this didn't really matter. And that led them to do one of two things. Either they thought the body was just kind of bad and lower than the spirit. So it caused them to be like, it doesn't matter what we do with the body. We can just kind of pursue any pleasure. We can indulge anything with our body because it doesn't really matter. It doesn't have anything to do with worship of God. Or people took the other approach where it was like, the body's bad. We shouldn't like participate in anything that remotely has any pleasure associated with. We need to deny the body. The body is bad. Right? We need to hold ourselves up in monastery and kind of whip our backs and deny ourselves and that sort of thing. And so Paul comes along and he says, offer your bodies. And what is he saying? He's saying there is no separation. This is his way of saying, 
God isn't looking for worship that's just kind of abstract and intellectual, not just about certain activities, certain times and places. He's looking for a worship that's total and practical in everything you do. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your true and proper worship. Now, sometimes we can be like these Greco-Romans, right? Like, we hear the word worship, and right away, we know what that means. That's this. Or even more specifically, that's what we were doing a few minutes ago when we were singing. That's worship. Okay, now it's time to, we weren't worshiping, now it's time to worship. And so, Daniel, our new pastor of worship, he must hate that title. Because he's trying to retrain the lead pastor. How dare him? Who does he think he is? Who do you think you are? He's trying to retrain the lead pastor and the staff about how to use the word worship. And so I've learned around Daniel, when I catch myself saying worship in reference to when we sing here on a Sunday morning, I I add, oh, in song, worship in song. (laughs) It's kind of become a thing because he changed the name of the worship visionary committee, which had everything to do with the music, to the music visionary committee. Why? Because worship is way bigger and our words matter. Worship isn't just what we do on a Sunday morning or certain activities. It's what we do on Monday, and it's what we do at school, and it's what we do at work, and it's what we do in our leisure time, and it's what we do with our possessions. All of it, Paul says, is called to be worship, because what is worship? It's just the worth and ship, those two English words, the giving of worth. In everything we do, everything we do, we do it in such a way that it shows the superior worth that we find in God. Everything is called to be worship. It is the way we live our life, giving our whole selves to God for His will. Give all yourself, like a blank check. Maybe so what you want to do, and you go, you want to take a check, your name and address in the corner, and you want to write Jesus Christ, sign at the bottom, and just don't fill it in. That's what Paul's saying. Give God a blank check. You're supposed to live in such a way that He can ask of you whatever He wants to ask of you, and He can give you whatever He wants to give you, and you're going to say, I'm yours. Yes. Uh, So, I mean, that happens in kind of both directions. We actively give ourselves to God, right, by obeying everything that He says in every area of our life, not certain areas. We say, God, this is yours, but this, I'm going to keep this over here. The the, The way I deal with my relationships the way I date, the way I view my sexuality, you know, what I do with my possessions. We obey everything He says in every area of our life. That's, that's our active way of offering, but, it, but it's also like a passive way. It's like, God, you have the right, and I give you the right to, to kind of put into my hands, to bring into my life whatever you want, and I will, I will accept it, and I will thank you for whatever you send into my life, even if it's not what I want, not what I would ask for, my hands are open, open to offer to you, like everything I have is yours, you can take it, it's all for you, you can tell me what to do with it, and you can put whatever into my hands you want to put into my hands. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And Paul kind of elaborates on that. He moves on here. The second command is is kind of like an elaboration of the first when he says in verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform. You know, there are a couple of patterns in the world. There's the pattern 
of the world, and then there's the pattern of God's will. Like some of you, you've just stepped back into school. Like my kids, my three daughters, they're all in new schools. I got a high schooler now, guys. Pray for me. A high schooler. No, I'm confident in my kid. Pray for her. You know, because she and the rest of you students, you're stepping into your schools and places. You're stepping into a place where there's already a pattern. Before you showed up, there was a pattern there that was established. What truly matters, what doesn't matter, what it looks like to be popular, how you're supposed to treat someone, what, you know, how to, how to think about your life, how to think about your sexuality, how, how to think about relationships, right? There's a pattern there. What he's saying is, don't, if, if you're not careful, you're just going to find the pattern and fit in, and you're going to mold yourself to fit it. Don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And that means swimming against the current all too often. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Now, do not conform. Like that, that, that's an actual command. You're supposed to do it. Don't conform. But be transformed is different. I don't want to get too in the weeds of grammar, but it's the passive voice, which means it's something acting on you. It's not something you're doing. You're not transforming yourself. You are being transformed. There is a force acting upon you that is transforming you. And what is that? That's the Holy Spirit. That is God at work changing you from the inside out. That's what transformed in the Greek. They're literally metamorphosis. You've heard that word, maybe science class. It means a fundamental change at the very core of you, not just like a little makeover on the outside. It means a, a, a wholesale change of the way you think about life. But the way you do life, it's the word used of like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That's metamorphosis. That's transformation. He's saying God wants to transform you and God will be at work doing the work of transformation as you are renewing your mind. Renewing your mind, which is a way of saying, thinking about life the way God thinks about life. How do we do that? Well, we do it by going, God, what do you think about life? What is your way? What is your pattern? What is your will? So we, uh, we renew our mind by hearing God's Word. That's what you're doing right now. Uh, like, I, I hope that your mind this morning will, this is a part of renewing your mind. I don't know how many times after sermon someone has come up to me and said, said uh, Rusty, you, you said that thing that really struck me. You know, it made an impact to me. And I'm like, I didn't say that. I wish I had because it sounds good. But I didn't say that. And I think God said that, Right? And you've maybe experienced that, right? When you hear God's Word, God, the written Word becomes the living Word when the living God speaks it into your life and applies it to your life. So when we hear God's Word and, and, and when in our own personal life, when we take time, when we devote time to read and to meditate on God's Word as a way of saying, it's not just knowledge accumulation, it's not checking a box saying, read the Bible, it's God speak to me. God, renew my mind so I don't conform to the pattern of the world, so I do life and I think about life your way. I'm a disciple. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So a disciple, first and foremost, Paul says, is to be completely surrendered to God. It's a, it's a total giving of oneself and the right over oneself to God and to His will to say, I am yours. But why would you do that? 
That's radical. Why would you do that? Well, well, Paul tells us why. He gives us a motive for this command. Um, and it's, there's two key words here. The very first word in, in Romans 12 is the word, therefore. And maybe you've you know, heard that saying, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore? Because that's an important word. That means whatever I'm about to say is connected to what I just said. Because what I just said is true, because of that, now this. The result is this. And so what has Paul just been talking about? Romans chapter 1 through 11, that's brought us to this point where he goes, therefore, well, he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy. He's just told us the whole story of, God, of the gospel, of God's mercy for you and for me. How, Romans 3, 23, how all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of, of God's sinners. We're all sinners we're all broken people, without exception. But Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The result of sinning against a holy, righteous God is separation from Him. The consequence of that is death. But Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were broken, doing life our own way without regard for Him, God loved us and He sent the Son to offer His body as a sacrifice for you. Because God loves you. Because God wants something better for you than you could ever get for yourself. So then Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And so he's just, he's talking about the story of God's mercy through Jesus and through the cross and, and the forgiveness and the new life that's been won for us that we receive not by our own efforts to attain it, but we receive when we recognize that we could never attain it and we just receive it by faith in Jesus. The mercy of God. And he says, in view of that, if we were to be thinking about that reality, Paul says, you know, that should cause us to offer our whole selves to God without reservation. To obey Him in everything. In fact, that word there, true and proper worship in verse 1, this is your true and... Does your Bible say something else? Spiritual. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's how I memorized it. They don't really know how to translate the word. You know, sometimes it's tough in translation. But literally in the Greek, it's the word logikon. What does that sound like? Logicon. I know some smart people here. Logic, right? Logic. That word is logic. This is your logical worship. In other words, hey, if this is true, if this is true, the only reasonable, rational thing to do would be to actually give yourself completely to this God. You know, we're people of faith, but that doesn't mean we're not people of reason. Not at all. The most reasonable thing to do in light of God's mercy is to worship Him with our whole life. And so the only sufficient motive, Paul says, for the Christian life is gratitude for God's grace. That's the reason. You know, our obedience of God is not negative in our motivation. It's not fear of what He might do if we just don't do enough. You know, He might kick us out of the family. He might abandon and forsake us. No, our obedience, our offering is positive. It's motivated by a knowledge 
and a gratitude for God's grace. And so if we keep His mercy in view, Paul says, like the, the natural thing should, that should flow from that is we will trust Him with everything, with everything, even the things that we don't understand, even the things that we don't think are good, even the things that are hard. So is the idea here that God did something great for us and now because of that we should do something for Him? Like, I think it would be possible to understand that, and I think, to be honest, I think that's what a lot of Christians, kind of their essence of the gospel is. God did this for me, and yeah, I guess I should. That was a lot. I mean, He died on the cross. Couldn't do any more. I guess I should. It would be the right thing to do. Is, is that what He's saying here? Hey, in view of God's mercy, give yourself to Him, for this is pleasing to God. God scratched your back, you to scratch His. Actually, that's a good analogy because I love to have my back scratched, like strangely a lot. When I was 16, my dad was the pastor, you know, in the, in, in the church in medicine. My family would sit in the second row. I was 16, and I was still pulling up my shirt right over my back, crutching by my mom, and my mom's like, you're 16, Rusty. This is not cool anymore. But I just like it that much. And so... Fortunately, God gave me three back scratchers. What a gift. But they don't see it that way. So this is not an uncommon occurrence in the Hildebrand house. One of my kids is walking by. I'm sitting on the couch. Hey, sweetie, can you come and scratch daddy's back? Daddy would really like a back scratch. Dad, no, no, no. Sweetie, come on, do it for me. No, I'm watching a video. Do you know all I've done for you? I work so hard for you, sweetie. I put this roof over your head. I bought you all those new clothes for school. I took you on that trip to Banff. Isn't the least you could do for me just to scratch my back? And this is the point where I actually start to get angry. (laughs) Is this true, Britta? Yes, she's nodding. (laughs) She's getting way too close to home. (sighs) Is that what this is? It's like, look what he did for you. The least you can do for him. Is that this? No. Okay, if we just stop there, that would be a, a complete misunderstanding of the motivation and what the disciple life looks like. That's not what Paul is saying at here because at the end of verse 2, he's going to give us the result of our offering, which is in response to God's mercy. Look what it says. Romans uh, 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able, listen, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His, say it with me, good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is His will for you like? Well, I don't know exactly. I know, I know what some of His will is, some of the general strokes, the specifics. I don't know, but this is what I do know. It's good, pleasing, and perfect. You know, we'll either look at surrender and sacrifice to God through a negative lens or a positive lens. And norm. Too often you hear the word sacrifice and you think negative. And and even that word surrender, isn't that what you do when when you've been defeated? When you lose, I surrender, you win. What Paul's saying here is surrender is no defeat. Surrender is the pathway to victory in your life. 
God isn't just doing this for himself. He's doing it for you so that you might know the fullness of his, of his plan for your life. As Jesus said in John 10, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. But we tend to think of sacrifice maybe, I don't know, as like a giving up, as a self-denial, something that's done just purely out of grit and duty and obligation, and that can kind of cause us to think of commitment in more of a negative sense. It might be something we should do, but it wouldn't be something that we would choose to do necessarily or want to do. And so we can have this fear of commitment. Um, it can cause us to kind of resist God, to resent God. But Paul is saying here is that it is the way, offering yourself fully to God, total surrender to His will, is the way that you will experience the perfect and pleasing will of God in your life. His dream for you. Like, obedience isn't the way that if you do this, He'll give you a cookie, He'll give you a blessing. Like, you earn the thing that you really want from Him, the thing that's really good. No, obedience is the blessing. Because when you do life, you're when you think, I think, I, I'm, God, I'm going to keep this over here, and I'm going to do relationships, and I'm going to do dating or whatever my way. Here's the thing. Whatever you do your way, you will end up injuring. You will end up harming. Right? You'll make a mess of it. It'll be toxic. And, and I, I see this as a pastor over and over. I know God says, but... Oh, Please, not the but. No, God knows better. God's plan is better. You have to trust that. Look what he did with his, his son. Like, he is trustworthy. He is wiser. He is more powerful. He could do something better in your life than you could ever do for yourself. And if you do it his way, you will avoid those pitfalls and, you know, those toxic relationships and those things that inevitably happen when you think that you know better. Obedience is the channel by which we experience the blessing, the good life that God has, which doesn't mean it's easy. At times it can be hard, but it's always good, and it always will be pleasing in the end. And I mean, this is what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 13, this it's probably his shortest parable because it's only one verse, but it's powerful. Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and he sold all he had and bought the field. Wouldn't that be nice to find treasure in a field? Now, this wasn't like a super unrealistic occurrence. They didn't have banks, Right? Like, if, if you had your life savings, all these gold coins, you might just bury it under the oak tree in the backyard, but then you go on a business trip and you die, and someone, at some point in the future, finds your life's savings buried in the ground. And so here's a guy who stumbles across this great treasure, and what does he do? He goes and he sells everything he has, you know? The house, the boat. He checks in all of his investments, cashes them in. He, he, he gets rid of it so he could have enough to go and buy that field. And how did he do it? Did he do it out of dutiful obligation? Well, I guess I should. It's the right thing to do. But man, that's such a great car, though. What does it say? How did he do it? 
Joy. In joy, he went and he sold it all as you could buy his field. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like that. That's what it's like to be a disciple. When you lay down your life, God always gives you something much better in return. So it's, you know, the disciple's life, it's not about dutiful sacrifice. It's about delightful sacrifice. Delightful sacrifice. Like, I mean, that guy, if, if I were to ask you, like, what do you think about that guy? Would you, is that guy noble? Is he holy? Is he a selfless individual? Maybe, maybe not. But what would you say he is? He's smart. He's smart. Yeah. He's not a fool. He's smart. In joy, he laid down everything he had so that he could win, receive this treasure, which is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the life that God has for all who would follow him. I mean, in view of what God uh, has done already, in view of what God has promised, wouldn't it be smart just to give control of whatever situation in your whole life to the master of the universe? If that's the master of the universe, the one who loves you so deeply that he lays down his life for you to bring you into a wonderful eternal life, like, wouldn't it be smart to give yourself to him, to give control to whatever that area of your life is that you just want to hang on to? Isn't that something that we might do with joy if we just had his mercy in view? And this is the paradox of the Christian life. Look, this is what Jesus says in a few chapters later, Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25. Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Well, that doesn't sound fun. But he goes on. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. That's the paradox of the Christian life. Whoever wants to find their life, that good, pleasing, and perfect will, that dream, God's dream for their life, must give it up. Must lay it down. Surrender is not defeat. It is the way to victory. But you know what? It's scary. So I'm, as I'm talking, I'm talking in general terms, but what I'm hoping is maybe this, maybe is just maybe resonating in some area of your life. That, you just ha- that maybe you need to surrender to God or you're having trouble giving God control of or something He's bringing into your life that you just want to know God. That's not good. I don't want any part of that. No, I'm not taking that. We're maybe scared to give up control uh, of some area because what will God do? He'll call me to be a missionary in Africa. Or even worse, He'll, he'll ask me to be a pastor. Who knows what God will do if I just give it to Him? Then you will know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, last week, if you're here at Teen Challenge, my cousin Derek was up here. Derek was like a lot of you young people, grew up in church, Sunday school. He knew the stuff, had the Sunday school answers, went to youth group, believed in Jesus, but he wasn't surrendered. No, he, God, he had given God, he was dabbling with God. 
He had allowed God to be a passenger because he liked Jesus. He wanted Jesus with him where he went. But Jesus was firmly invited to sit in the passenger seat. And if you heard his story here, he talked about how he had to come to that point where he realized that all of that just led to emptiness. It led to emptiness, it led to pain, it didn't work. All the things that he thought he wanted or needed, he, he, it was empty. And then he talked about the time when he actually truly fully surrendered his life and that's when change happened. When he gave it all up without restrictions to God. I wonder this morning if that's something that you need to do. Maybe this morning you just need to give all of yourself to God through faith in Jesus. Maybe for the first time. You know, maybe you're someone who's been hanging on to some area of your life that's kind of been off limits or that you've been struggling to give up control of. What do you need to surrender? As a disciple of Jesus, what do you need to surrender to God today? You know, when he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, the word living there doesn't just mean, like, not dead as in, you know, like you actually didn't die when you were offered on the altar. It means something that's ongoing. Again and again and again. Every day, offering yourself to God. It's not something that just happens once. Because, you know, we can take back control, can't we? And maybe, maybe that's true in your life. Maybe something has happened in your life, and you've You've shrunk back or you've taken control of something again. And, and maybe this morning, what you need to do, what God is calling you to do, is to offer yourself fully to Him. So here's this question. I, I just want to give you a moment to ponder and then to pray. Um, you know, the, the, the question is, um, is there something that you need to surrender fully, offer to God? Is there something that you've kept control of? Some way you've resisted His will? And if God brings something to your mind, I invite you to fill in that blank and pray that prayer. Lord, I surrender, fill in the blank fully to You. I open my hands, it's Yours. I will do Your will. You can do with me in this area whatever You will. Or, or you know, may, maybe for you there's not something like that that comes to mind right now, but maybe as a disciple of Jesus, you just want to once again as a living sacrifice say, God, I'm all yours. I'm all in. I'm not holding any chips back. I'm pushing all my chips into the middle of the table. I'm all in. Why don't you just take a moment uh, to think about that in your own life and uh, maybe to pray this prayer and then I'll close. well-known old author by the name of G.K. Chesterton said once, um, 
It's not that Christianity has been tried and failed, it's that it's so rarely been tried. Let's try it. A disciple is devoted to worship, to worship God with their whole lives. So as you go from here, just one more thing I'm going to ask you to do as a way to help you in this and as you continue to to ponder and respond to what God has said to you, to keep the conversation going. Maybe you got this card when you came in. If you didn't, you can find it on your way out on a stool there by the door. On this card, you'll see the verses Romans 12, 1 to 2. First of all, memorize. It wouldn't be hard to memorize those verses. Take five minutes every day. By the end of the week, you'll have that memorized. Those are good verses to memorize. And then it says time and place. Now, Paul said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is like submit yourself to the Word of God so He can work His will in your mind and transform you, right? But, but, but you need to put yourself before God's Word so He can speak to you. So the written Word becomes the living Word when the living God speaks it into your life. And so some of you, maybe you've got this wonderful time every day where you find a couch or a chair and you open your Bible and you have a time with God and you speak to Him and you look at His Word and you listen to Him. Um, but maybe you don't. So can I, can I just help you? What I want to encourage you to do is just take this, and when it says time, I want you to write in there the time of day that you're going to choose to spend with God by reading some of the Bible, and then not just closing it, but praying and, and asking God to speak to you and meditating on that and listening to the voice of God to renew your mind. Write in a time and then write in a place. Where are you going to do that? Are you going to do it in the lazy boy in the living room? Are you going to do it by the couch in the fireplace in the basement? Are you going to do it in the bed in your bedroom when you wake up? Are you going to do it out in the sunroom? Are you going to do it at 6 in the morning before the kids get up? Are you going to do it at 9.30 at night when the kids go down to bed? Are you going to do it at na- noon in the lunchroom at work or in the, in the work truck? When are you going to do that? doesn't matter. But just choose a time, choose a place, give it a try. Put this where you're going to see it. On the fridge, we all need to eat. On the mirror in your bathroom, you get up, you brush your teeth, you use the washroom, you're reminded, oh yeah, oh yeah. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know God's will, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So church, uh, let's be disciples. A disciple is first of all devoted to worship. Devoted to worship. Let's pray. God, We have just brought into view again your mercy for us, which is so wonderful. God, that while we kind of stuck in our sin, in our own life, doing the best that we could and maybe not doing a very good job of it, you sent your son to do it all for us so that we could have a new life, that we could be a new creation, that we could know your dream for our lives. And God, we do want to know that. And so, Lord, as, as we've all just heard your word, this command to offer our whole selves to you as our act of worship, I just pray, God, that each one of us, as we go from here back to our homes and our lives, you would show us what that looks like to live completely surrendered to you for your glory, yes, to please you, yes, and also so that we might have the pleasure of knowing your perfect will for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.